we are taking a living thing out of the environment and that we honor that living organism by making a piece of furniture or making a craft that's going to last a lifetime or beyond, that it doesn't get used for a few months or a few years and end up in a landfill. Let's talk quality, family business, and American-made tools. Bits and Bits offers all three and more. They make all types of bits, CNC bits, router bits, engraving cutters, even custom bits if you need. The list goes on. Everything you want for your shop, you can get at BitsBits.com. It's their name, but it's also what they do. They are first and foremost a manufacturer. They actually make their own products in their own Pacific Northwest American factory. And for over 30 years, they've been a family business. So if you want to talk about a company that stands behind their product, you're talking about Bits and Bits. They are also a full Festool and Whiteside distributor. But what really stands them apart in my mind, besides manufacturing their own product, is their exclusive Astra coating. They put it on everything they make and it extends the life of a bit no matter if you're using it in wood, metal, or plastic. Want to know more? Just check out BitsBits.com. That's B-I-T-S, B-I-T-S dot com. Check them out for all your Bits needs. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Jack Cerciara, owner of the furniture company Salish Sea Woodworks. From studying penguins in Patagonia to becoming a fine furniture maker, not many people follow the career path that Jack has. But a unique perspective on the industry and a client-centric work ethic has allowed him to grow his passion into a sustainable business. And his commitment to understanding and sticking to his brand has let him drive his company forward while still maintaining his core identity. So follow along as we talk about working in a small shop, teaching your clients to trust you, understanding your brand, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Jack's story in his own words. So furniture has been a hobby of mine since probably high school, but my training and my, my path led me in a very different academic direction. To start back in high school, I think my first table was a coffee table and an end table that I made for my parents in the garage one summer. I was looking for something to do and really excited about Home Depot and tools and that kind of stuff and was like, well, I'll, I'll make a table. It was something to do, something fun that seemed interesting. And it is probably objectively one of the worst pieces of furniture ever made. You know, it's a plywood top screwed into crown molding from the top with uh, deck screws and stained the darkest walnut stain I could find in uh, Home Depot aisle. But my parents used that table until probably two years ago and I replaced it with one of my pieces for them as a gift. But that kind of got me really interested. And then through kind of college, uh, undergraduate college, I did a bunch of DIY stuff, was kind of like the need, someone who needed to fix something or build something for uh, our house where we lived. I would call them party tables that needed to get built. I became the guy who made those pretty quickly. So I was always kind of just handy and enjoyed building things and finding that creative process. But uh, life and my career kind of took a different direction. Uh, after college, I majored in biology and then decided to go to graduate school and become a research biologist. So I went and got my PhD. It's actually what brought me here to the to Seattle. I went to the University of Washington, did my PhD here, and I'm trained as a physiologist. And from there, kind of went on that path. And then a few years, you know, a few years, 
seven years of school, five years of fellowships. And I didn't start getting back into furniture or kind of DIY stuff until purchased our first home. My wife and I kind of had access to a garage. We needed DIY stuff around this new house that we bought. We were fixing up and kind of delved back into that, bought my first contractor saw and kind of got back into this woodworking generally and DIY. And it wasn't until I kind of got on Instagram and started sharing some things I was making for my house, little pieces of furniture and came across a couple of people, uh, notably Philip Morley and then Mike Pekovich, and was really kind of inspired and excited about fine furniture. And that was like, wow, this is really interesting and bringing together design and this beautiful joinery and something that's a functional art piece. And so I started to make uh, pieces of furniture for my family and for friends and kind of slowly and organically that grew from piece here, piece there to friends, to friends of friends. And in late 2019, I had a kind of a considerable backlog of things I was doing kind of as a side hobby. It was a thing that I was doing in the shop as a way to relax and decompress from the stresses of my day job and nights and weekends in the shop and kind of just working through this backlog of pieces and kind of just fell in love with, with furniture making. The end of 2019, my last fellowship ended and some academics have this kind of burnout feeling. And myself, I was feeling after what was 12 years of study and professional work, I had this backlog of projects and kind of talked to my wife. I was like, you know, maybe uh, while I'm looking for a job, I can kind of focus on this. So spend the mornings doing the job hunt. And then in the afternoons and evenings, I'm going to make these pieces of furniture and really just poured myself into being a student of the craft and building and making mistakes and building as much as I could. Four or five months looking for a job. And during that time, that grow that list of kind of potential clients or backlogs slowly keep growing and growing and growing. And in February of 2020, my wife and I sat down. I was like, you know, I wonder if there's something to this. I wonder if there's something I can go out and we can I can try and do this full time. And I was finding the same excitement that originally drew me to, oddly enough, you know, research biology. And I was a wildlife biologist. It was what really attracted me to that was attempting really hard problems or challenging tasks, figuring out solutions, being a, a lifelong student and working with my hands. I was trained as a field biologist, so being outside and, and working with actual wildlife. So that became something that was really exciting to me. And, and I was finding that same joy and passion in woodworking and in fine furniture, particularly that I found in, in academia. So we decided, hey, why don't we see if this can be something? And in February 2020, open full time. When you're talking about your building process, you tell clients, and I quote, that a single craftsperson will be working on your project from start to finish, end quote. And I love the way you phrase that because it it's a true statement for people who know that you have a one-person shop, but it also makes the person, the one-person shop, seem so much more important, like a like a luxury for the client rather than a shortcoming. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is something that a lot of people should take notice of, the way you word that, because I know that a lot of shops have a hard time presenting themselves when they operate out of a small space. And to be clear, I'm not saying that the size of your workspace has anything to do with the quality of your work. You work out of a 300-square-foot shop and make award-winning furniture. And I know other people who are in similar situations making a great career in the furniture business as well. But what I am saying is that 
it sometimes makes it harder to present yourself as that super high-end furniture maker when you have a small shop and are a sole operator. I've read a lot of bios, I've, I've talked with a lot of people, and, that, and the way you did that and the way you say that is the perfect way to have explained your situation, making the idea of a small shop and a single-person shop into something that's a good thing and putting a good spin on it rather than a negative spin on it. My uncle is a lifelong uh, fine timber framer in actually the tri-state area. He works out of mostly Connecticut. And one of the things that he always said was, I know what your brand is. Define that. And that can, you know, that can evolve over time as maybe you grow as a business, you grow as a shop, or you grow in your interests. Figure out what your brand is going to be. And then whether it's the types of pieces you make, the kind of marketing you do, the kind of clients you take on, or the kind of pieces or price points you're at, figure out what exactly that brand is. And that's the thing you need to protect the most. Never devalue your brand. And if you can define it, and that's one of the things that I've learned is defining what I want to be at and what I want to be as a business. So for me, I don't have the goal as a business. People will say like, oh, if you're not uh, scaling, you're going to die, or you're not you know, growing and doing more pieces and bigger stuff and having a bigger shop and more employees. That's not my goal. It's not my goal for the next 30 years. It's not my goal for this business. My brand is the product and the client first, that every client gets the very best piece of furniture that they can possibly have. And whether it takes me two weeks to make it or two months to make it, that at the end of the day, those uh, efficiencies are on me as a business owner, to me as a grow and to learn and to perfect my craft as a craftsman, but that the person at the end of the day gets the very best possible product because that's what they're going to be spending the money on. And I think from uh, an ethical standpoint, if we're taking a living organism out of the environment, try my darndest to make sure that our lumber is harvested sustainably and locally, we are taking a living thing out of the environment and that we honor that living organism by making a piece of furniture or making a craft that's going to last a lifetime or beyond, that it doesn't get used for a few months or a few years and end up in a landfill. And so the quality of that product is kind of the first and foremost in that every client receives that, that direct connection. And that's my plan to grow in terms of the business side is I would take on the apprentice model and have that same mindset rather than taking on how big of a shop can we get? How many CNCs can we get to, increase our production number because it's just not how my and there's nothing wrong with that that's just not how i view my role in this craft and my role as business so the 300 square foot shop is uh requires some creativity requires some challenge to work in but it does allow me to work on one piece at a time and be sure that from start to finish that piece gets 100 percent of my attention that's actually a perfect segue into the next thing that I want to talk with you about. And you have a small shop. We've talked about it. I'd love to get into how you're organizing it to work efficiently, but I also know that it's your own physical space. And although it's interesting, it might not be an equivalent space or setup for somebody else, and they might have different needs than you. So I don't want to talk about your physical space, but what I do want to talk about is how you take on clients having a space like that. Because you need to pick the perfect client every single time. If there's an issue with a client, that holds up your entire lead time, your entire process, basically your entire year. Because if you don't have that space to put the projects away and start on something else if something goes wrong. So let's talk about how you're picking 
the right customer for your working situation and also how you deal with lead times knowing that one hiccup could put your production schedule at a complete standstill. Sure. So one of the things that is really important to the flow of the business is picking again the parts the pieces that fit my brand so i will have you know a client reach out to me through my contact page or through google or something like that give me a call and say hey we need we're doing redoing our kitchen we need a bank of built-ins and we we we, we sought you out because we want really high quality we want hardwood doors and we want to have this really high-end kitchen or something i can't take on that project because i can't store 15 cabinets in my my shop while i'm working on them it's just not a good fit for my brand I don't have a desire to do built-ins. I don't have a desire to do that kind of work. So they're just really, and, and it's not that I don't like it or there's any difference in the folks who do that work. It's just not what my brand is about. I'm a standalone furniture company, not a, a generalist woodworker. And that's that's really just aligning the clients to my brand. So I will probably in an average month turn down 25% of clients just for not a good fit. Whether it's the type of project they want to do, you know, hey, I need you to rebuild my gate for my cedar fence. I'll just pass on it. Say, hey, it's really not, you know, it's not a good fit. We are fortunate here in the Northwest. We have a pretty good community of woodworkers. So I'll say, hey, can I share your your information with my colleagues or with my community? And maybe someone else can pick up your project. And that really goes back to understanding your brand and understanding what is a good fit for you, both from allowing me to do it physically in the shop. It's going to be on the business side. But also, I think if you continue to do projects that are outside of your brand, it can dilute what your brand is about. And then you're going to be doing more of those projects that you don't exactly want to do. So choosing clients on that. The other thing that I do to, to do with clients is size, um, the size of the piece. For you know, I've done everything from you know, small side tables to 10-foot huge dining tables in my shop. It requires some creativity and requires some kind of moving things around and, and making it work. But if someone came to me and said, hey, I need an 18-foot conference table for my business, uh, I would just have to politely decline and say, hey, man, my, that's not a good fit for my shop. I have a small shop. And that is kind of how I try to limit kind of what comes into my shop in terms of a, being a good fit for my brand and my shop. But I also have some things on the kind of contract communication. I'm very directly communicating with my clients. Everything's done because they only work with me. I develop a personal relationship. One of the things that's been great about social media is I refer them all and I tend to do a lot of stories on Instagram and they can follow and see their piece come to life. So having that connection allows me to have a very direct and frank conversation with them. Like, hey, this piece uh, that I was working on before yours, it went a week over. So we're going to be about a week longer than your estimate time. But I try and keep those lead times really um, conservative. So I give about a, a month block. And I always give myself about two extra weeks than I expect. So right now my lead time is any update on my website probably, but it's probably 14 to 16 weeks. But I tend to deliver if, you know, you came to me and said, hey, I need a piece of furniture. I would say, hey, Ethan, it's going to be 14 to 16 weeks. Most likely you would get that piece in 10 to 12. And that's just a way of managing your clients and having them be excited. Like, oh, this came, you know, a month early. This is so great. But allows me that flexibility so things don't go right or there's some delay. I think developing that relationship and showing them a high level of customer service in terms of going on a Zoom interview with them when we do our initial designs, they get as many free designs as they want until we land on a piece that they really love. They know what kind of product they're going to be getting. And so at the end of the day, they know that they'd rather have the best possible product if it's a week later than they expected it. You are very upfront about your business, not only the creative part, 
and talking with clients and showing them the process on social media and on phone calls and in emails and showcasing everything being built. But you're also upfront with the business side, the contracts and the return policies and the cancellation policies. And you have that all on your website for anyone to see before they even work with you. Contracts are not easy. And I think that anyone who's in this business will tell you that. People struggle with them, and they're always looking to find a place as a template to make their own contracts to build on. Can you talk about your contract and how clients have reacted to it, and also how you've developed it from the start of it to where it is now? Because I imagine it's changed a lot. Sure. When I initially got into getting a contract, I used a contract that I got from uh, Martin Goebel, Goebel and Company in uh, St. Louis slash Chicago. Obviously, Martin is a Krenoff trained furniture maker. He's has a very successful business uh, there in kind of the Midwest. Yeah, and... he's a great guy. He's been on the show and it was a great episode talking with him. Oh, yeah. Martin's, Martin, Martin's the man. I really like Martin a lot. And we've talked a lot. We actually collaborated on, collaborated on a award-winning piece now two years ago. So... One of the things that I got from him was kind of a base contract, but that initially started out. And I think a lot of people on the business end say, okay, I have, a, I have to have a contract. I got to protect myself, right? What if this person flakes on me? Or what if um, they complain five years down the road that there's a hairline scratch on their table and they demand I replace it? Or God forbid, you know, I think for a small business like mine, the unfortunate, unfortunately where we are in uh, kind of social media, like what if they put a bad review? What if I get a three star or two star because something happened? And that kind of started out as like, okay, I got to have this contract. But as I started to think about it, and as I started to talk to clients uh, who I've had, you know, very general acceptance, they said, yeah, okay, so it looks, all looks pretty boilerplate. And fortunately, I started with a good um, framework from Martin. I really learned that it's about trust. It's about trust in two, in, in two directions. And I learned that most really highlighted this year uh, with a client who found me because I was giving, I was invited to give a talk at our local Rockler store and he happened to be shopping for some stuff. He was doing some remodels in his house and he stopped and watched. And then we talked afterwards and now I'm doing a bunch of pieces for him. When I signed the contract, he was like, Hey, I don't, I don't know if I want to sign this because I just met you. How am I going to know that when I send you a 65% deposit, you're not just going to leave and not deliver that. So the contract had to evolve over the last year and a half or so from really hey, how do I protect myself and my business to how do I make this about developing trust? That I trust that you as the purchaser is going to pay for your thing at the end of the day, it's going to get delivered. And how do they know that they're going to trust me to first and foremost, make it and deliver it and not just disappear with a deposit. And then secondarily, that they're protected, that I stand by when I say a piece is made to last a lifetime, that I have that in actual writing. And so I offer a two year, which is kind of, I think, standard, um, warranty on on the construction and, and the craftsmanship. And if I really approach it in terms of like developing trust, that's how stuff kind of got added to that. So I'm very transparent about that. And if I, if the clients have questions, I always go over the contract with them and show them, Hey, it's really developing this trust. Here's what you're going to pay. And here's what you're going to get. Here's the scope of work. Here's what I'm going to make. Here's how you're protected in the warranty. Here's uh, how I'm protected in terms of things that aren't covered. And, and it's both, if we, we walk the line of rather than making the contract all about protecting the business, but really about two sides of that line, how do we protect our valuable clients and what their needs are and what my needs are as a business. So there are things in there about the warranty for the client, but there's also, particularly for my business, they have to accept delivery within seven days, unless we arrange something. 
that's so that I can protect my workflow. So pieces actually leave the shop. And so if I approach contracts with this way of developing trust, I think it alleviates a lot of that. And that's why I share it on my website because the folks are like, well, this is a high price table. This is a lot of money I'm going to spend. And then they look at the contract and say, okay, well, this is all very clear. This is what I'm getting. This is what's going to protect me. You have an academic background, so it's in your character to take deep, hard looks at things. And that's sure. And for you right now, that's parts of your business, the building process and the business part of your company. And I want to talk with you about pricing because that's really something that people can can go deep into. And it's something that sets successful businesses and businesses that are able to keep moving forward apart from ones that unfortunately fail. Talking about pricing, I want to hear the way you thought about it and how you thought about it in the beginning and how you learned from your mistakes and grew your pricing to a point where you are now that you feel more comfortable with the work you're taking on and the money you're getting from that work. My pieces, because of the amount of time and, you know, trying to do things like sustainable wood and uh, there is a higher value, both on my own personal time and the, the cost of a piece, the amount of labor hours that go into it. But initially, I was charging way too little for the piece of furniture I was making. And I made the mistake of thinking, even in the first year of my business, that like, hey, I'm new. No one knows me. I'm a novice. I can't charge the appropriate rate for this piece of furniture. And that took a while to come back from because that goes through the network of, of clients. Hey, you know, you come to me and you're like, Hey, my buddy spot this table for 300 bucks. Why is it $700 now? Because I can't make it to $300 and be a sustainable business. So the mindset I have now is I would rather lose clients because of price point than not be able to sustain myself as a business. And that took a while to learn and grow through. And I wish that I had stuck to my guns and had a little more confidence in my business and my brand earlier on. I have my own design line. You can go to my website and pick out designs and designs that make it to that website most likely started as a a custom piece, whether if they were a simple, you know, castle joint coffee table, kind of pretty typical standard design that started as someone wanting to order something that looked like that. And I designed it and it made it to the website. And so how I approach pricing in terms of custom furniture, and then I'll talk about kind of the design line items that are on the website is figuring out, you know, I have a good sense with my suppliers, what hardwood lumber costs and what the materials are going to be. And um, allowing for variation. One of the things that I made a mistake of early on is not accounting for as much waste as there is. While I try to be sustainable and minimize waste, you got to remove a knot. You got to buy an extra board. Uh, you bring a bring a bring a um, a lumber lumber to your shop, and it decides that it's going to move and adjust to your shop. And now it's cut, and you got to go out and spend another fifty five dollars on a piece of walnut. Accounting for a little more waste, so I account for about fifteen um, percent lumber waste. I account for 25% material waste. And that's like finishes, sanding paper, glue, and that kind of stuff. And then the entire project gets a 15% overhead markup, cover electricity. Even if it's on my property, my shop is draws way more power than my normal garage would. And then what I do that I think is unique is it takes a very standard, what they call the three times rule. So the three times rule is materials and lumber times three, that's an appropriate starting point. And that's what I kind of recommend people who have 
They have no clue how to, they don't know what their time's going to cost, how long a project's going to be. I say, take all your fixed costs, give yourself a little, give yourself a, a buffer of waste, multiply it times three, and that's a good place to start. That multiplier changes based on the complexity of the piece. So it might go from two and a half to four times material cost. But then what I do and turn in an effort to be fair to my clients is I do market research. So if I'm doing a dining table and it says this dining table, when I price it out is $5,000, but I look out in the market for similar priced people. I price myself in the top 10% of furniture. If I'm way above that, my view is that that is then on me as a craftsman. I need to be find efficiencies. I can't go out and say, hey, it's going to take me because I have my small shop. What should be a $5,000 table is $8,000 for me to make it. That's not fair to my clients because I'm arbitrarily choosing things, whether it's my shop, whether it's my expertise or my skills, I'm charging them for that. So what I do is then I will adjust that price and know that I have to find efficiencies. I need to practice. I need to get faster at hand cutting dovetails, which is what I do for all my pieces. Those are all things that I need to do on my end. I can't pass that cost onto the client. And then the final thing that I do is I take that final price adjusted for market value in the top 10% and just divide the labor hours and figure out after 15% profit for the business or how long should it take me given my hourly wage to make that. And I charge 75 to hundred dollars an hour. If it says this table at this cost can be made, it should be made in one week to pay myself that rate and I can do it in a week. Great. Then that's a well-priced piece of furniture. If it says <laughs> you have to finish this cabinet in, in seven hours, then either the piece needs to be priced higher or I need to increase my efficiency and my skill set so that I can make it in what is a market and fair approach to the client. The other end of that very briefly is the pieces that are on my website. Those come from my experiences. So if there's a table on a dining table on my website, I could almost guarantee hundred percent of the prices on my website, the original client who ordered that custom piece paid less. And I learned through making the piece that I can't make it for the price I quoted. It needs to be 15% more for this to be good for my business. So the price that you see reflected on my website is probably the real cost having gone through the build process of what it should cost for that piece of furniture. You've talked throughout this whole interview about learning and learning in your academic career and learning in your woodworking career and asking people for help and getting information back and not being an island onto yourself when you're trying to learn. Even though you are self-taught, you're getting that input from other people, talking with them and understanding what other people have done who have gone before you. What are some things that you could share with people who are just starting their career or people who have been doing this for a while and want to get better at their business? Is there anything that stands out for you that you think is important for other people to take away from your experiences? Figure out what you love to do. I love fine furniture. That is what you should do. You know, that, that is part, that should be a part of your brand and committed to making the best possible one you can make. And I think the other one is reach out to community. I've found that I'm sure you have in talking to so many people through this and through just your social gregarious nature that people are generally excited. We're talking about something we're all passionate about. So we're all willing to share what we love. And we love this business. We love furniture making. Uh, we love woodworking if you're doing something woodworking adjacent. And so reach out to folks. And I think you'll find that 
and develop that sense of community because you never know what you're going to learn along that process. And you can take those little things as they fit into your business. Well, I appreciate you also adding your voice to this community and adding your knowledge and sharing what you've learned. So I appreciate that. And I want to thank you for it. And I know that everybody listening wants to thank you for it as well. So I appreciate your time and wishing you nothing but success moving forward in your career. Thanks so much for the opportunity to, to share my story. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.